Amen. All right, good to have you in God's house today. We're glad that you're here today to hear the Word of God. That's a great song, wasn't it? I sought the Lord at the end. And he answered. Yeah, they should have been shaking their heads like this. You know, that kind of, that song was built for that. But uh, that might have been too, well, I don't want to get off on track. Okay, good to have you here today. We're glad you're here if you're visiting with us. I want you to take your Bibles this morning. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're coming back to our series in the book of Mark. And uh, so um, enjoy this. This is, this section of Mark is what leads up to the crucifixion. It's the what they call the uh, temple narratives, specifically the temple narratives and Jesus' authority. And so I'm preaching a message today called Turf Wars, Turf Wars. And uh, I really think this is a, a beautiful section to understand spiritual authority and our spiritual authority in Jesus Christ. And so my desire is that that kind of gets locked into your heart. I'm going to say a lot of things that just kind of I've been mulling through my mind and I hope I'm on target. I felt like I needed to say what I wanted to say in the last service, so I feel the same way today or this service. So let's stand together. I'm going to read Mark 11. I'm just going to read a few verses here, verse 27 to 33. 27 to 33. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you will answer me. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to him, them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You may be seated. Jesus exercises all spiritual authority in heaven and on earth, and that spiritual authority, I believe, from the Word of God has been granted to us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to start by just giving you a definition of spiritual authority so you'll kind of lock it into your heart. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's by J.I. Packer. I love this definition of spiritual authority. The divinely authorized right and responsibility delegated to believers to act on God's behalf in spiritually ruling over his creation under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is a great definition. Maybe leave it up there for just a few seconds so they could get that down if they want to. But I'm going to talk to you about the spiritual authority that's been given to you, but I first want to talk about it from the perspective of Jesus Christ and what these passages are about. Simply put, when you are surrendered to Christ's lordship, you will experience spiritual authority. Okay? That's a gift you'll be given. When you, experience, when you surrender to Christ's lordship, you will experience spiritual authority. I want to talk about what spiritual authority is a little bit in a practical way. So the way I want to start this message, and maybe I'll refer to it throughout the message, but it just touches me. I shared a story in chapel the other day about a guy named Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, Joseph Son. He was from Romania. He was a missionary Baptist pastor there spreading the gospel in Romania. Well, in 1977, they were under communist control uh, not communist control, more of the Russian control, yeah, communism, and it was through Russia with the KGB. And so he was preaching the gospel. They wanted him to stop. So one of the KJB agents secretly met with him at a restaurant. 
and told Joseph, we don't want to make your life harder than it is, but we need you to stop preaching the gospel. And he said, I can't do that. And he said, what we're going to do for you is we're going to offer you a secular job here in this city, and you can have this secular job the rest of your life. You'll be well taken care of, but you can't ever preach the gospel again. He said, I can't do that. He left that meeting, and within one day, they were at his house, and they arrested him and sent him to a prison labor camp. In the prison labor camp, he was there for four years, and he worked hard labor. He went under interrogations, he went under beatings, and he, they played mind games with him. He returned home in four years, they released him, he went back to his wife, and he started to preach the gospel again. The man who met with him secretly in the restaurant now became kind of the chief of police of the KGB in that city. And so the KGB chief of police person was furious about this, so he sent soldiers to his house, and the soldiers came to his house. They broke down his door. They took the butt of a rifle. They, they smashed it into his face, knocked him down. He was knocked out. He was bleeding in the face. They began to ransack his house. His wife was terrified. She sat at a chair in the kitchen area and waited to see what would happen. He came back to consciousness. He was bleeding in the face. And uh, they began to ransack his entire library and tear his books apart. And even the KGB chief said to bring back one of those books. And so they ransack the office. He gets up in a stupor. He's bleeding there. And he stands up with those men ransacking his house, and he says this. He said, honey, we have guests. Would you please make them some coffee? And that's what she began to do. She began to make him coffee. He said, it hit me like a ton of bricks from that day forward. I was in control through the spirit of submission. That is spiritual authority. From that day forward, I was in control through the spirit of submission. I want you to hang on to that, okay, because that's a wonderful story. The KGB agents went back to uh, their chief. They handed him the book. He was sitting there at the desk with all of his agents around him. He opened the book and immediately he grabbed his heart and <gasps> with one breath he fell over and had a heart attack and died. That so infected the KGB agents. They never went back to Son's house again and they said, don't go to Son's house. That's a man of God. And they left him alone the rest of his ministry. Now, that's an incredible story and almost unbelievable from our perspective, but that spiritual authority that I'm talking about there with that man is something I want to talk about in your life, and it may not be at the same level, but it definitely can be there, all right? So, it is Wednesday now in this passage in Scripture. It's the week of Jesus' crucifixion. In two days, they'll have him on a cross. Now, Jesus, on purpose, returns to the temple. It's like it's like uh, going back into a hornet's nest. He just keeps going back to the temple, back to the temple. He just had cleansed it yesterday on Tuesday, and so now he went back into the temple again. When he returns this time, he's met by three groups of religious leaders. The Bible says the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, if you put all three of those groups, this is the first time he's met these groups all together. If you put those all together, they are called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. 
Now, who are the Sanhedrin? They are the religious and political authorities. They are the final court of the land, the supreme court of the nation of Israel. So they sit in the seat of Moses. What to sit in the seat of Moses means you give the living interpretation of the word for that day. You're in charge of giving the interpretation. They were kind of like the prosecution team. If anybody got out of line, they went and dealt with them. They were like the A-team of the land, the religious governors. Now, what you have to understand is a lot of times you see them as the enemy. In reality, they are most highly respected by the people of the land because they're the ones who have the authority to sit in the seat of Moses. So they're very authorized and highly respected. They may not have had as much power in Galilee, but basically what they were saying now when they confronted Jesus is, this is our turf in Judea. This is our turf. And so you're coming into a place where, why did you clean house and who gave you the authority to clean house and cleanse the temple? You never came to us. You never talked to us. Who do you think that you are? This is our house. This is our temple. That's basically their attitude as they're coming to him. Now, Jesus has been getting under their skin for a few years, three and a half years of his ministry. He has exercised hundreds of demons. He has healed hundreds of people. He's claimed to forgive sins. He's accepted sinners into his company. He's even enlisted tax collectors to be part of his following. He redefined the Sabbath day. He rejected their oral traditions, and now he's done the temple cleansing. That's the final straw with him. They're coming. He's coming on their turf. And so... What you need to see underneath this is Jesus is provoking them. He's provoking them on purpose. Because he's got to die in two days. And he knows that. So the religious leaders had enough, and it was time to trap him and get him out of their hair. So on accusatory note, they question him, and they say in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Where do you think your authority comes from? That's the big question. Where does your authority come from? Jesus said, or Jesus could have said, I speak nothing of my own. Everything I speak is of the Father. If he speaks, I speak it for him. He could have said that, but he didn't. He could have answered and said, all authority is given to me under heaven and in earth. But he didn't say that. Now, the reason he didn't say that is because he's got a different objective here. He's kind of hiding his elusiveness in this context. But that is the supreme question. By what authority are you doing these things? That is the supreme question every person faces today in their life. The question of authority. Now, the unbeliever faces it. You may not have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not have bended the knee to him. You may not have embraced him as your Lord and Savior. You know why you haven't done that? Because you doubt his authority. Who is Jesus that I have to answer to him? See, that's why a person would resist Jesus Christ. Now, see, personally, I'm nothing. Preachers are nobodies for that matter. But the question is, who is Jesus? And so all spiritual authority has been given, and he commands you to repent of your sin. That's what you have to decide in your life if you're here and you're not saved. Will I repent of my sin or not? Will I own it? Will I say my sin deserves judgment? Everybody has to answer that question at some point. And if you say no, basically what you're saying is, you're not my authority. You're not my authority. The believer faces the supreme question of authority, but it's a little different for us because we've submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but the real question we wrestle with now is have we submitted to his will? 
have we submitted to his will as he has defined it for us in the word of God? Have you experienced, to keep it in context, have you experienced his mountain-moving power? Have you experienced spiritual authority in your life like Joseph saw on? So, I want to preach on the authority of Christ. I've outlined this message around three thoughts. The authority of Christ will transform every believer to strengthen three behaviors. And I'm very committed to this, and I hope I say the right things to you uh, as I, I feel heavy on my heart about it, but three behaviors. Here they are. Number one, the first thing when the authority of Christ works in your life is you will have a spine without spite. You'll have a spine without spite. They say to him, verse 27, 28, by what authority are you doing these things? You are taking over our realm of authority, our temple. Now, what are they doing? They're trying to do two things, and I'll just talk about one here right now. The first thing they're trying to do is publicly in front of everybody is intimidate Jesus, which is exactly what your culture will do to you. They'll try to intimidate you in front of everybody. And so they're trying to intimidate him. By what authority? But Jesus wouldn't back down. These are highly respected authorities of the nation. So the principle here is very simple, and I want you to hear it. When you are obeying God, you don't need man's permission. You don't need man's permission when you are obeying God. When you follow God, you don't need to worry about what the authorities are saying. Now, think that through carefully, okay? Uh, but you do not need to follow that, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The persecuted church understands that. We aren't under persecution like the persecuted church, but they know what it's like to have spiritual authority because they have to go against the government authority of their land. That's why the persecution church has a, such a difficult time today because they realize what they're committing to do. Today, what we do in our culture, this is just my take, is we back off for the wrong reasons because we kind of feel like we're not being loving or kind to tell people the truth. Which is usually a distortion of what it means to be loving and kind. The bottom line is you have to, if you're going to serve Christ, you have to have a strong spine. You have to have a strong spine. Stand firm. Let me, let me just give you a few examples of this because I'm, I'm thinking of culture as I... As I talk about this. First of all, the first one that I think is preeminent is the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have a spine on that one. You have to believe that Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you don't get that settled in your heart, you'll be all over the place waffling with all kinds of people. And so that one in our culture is huge, huge. And I'll come back to that later on, but, but the the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's clear. That's clear. Abortion. Abortion. Life begins at conception. That's clear. That's clear. Now, I, I will just, I want to say a little sideline on that because I have had to deal with this in the last five months with different, with two couples, okay, ectopic pregnancies, okay? Ectopic pregnancies are non-viable. There's no way the child, the developing uh, fetus can live outside of the womb and so it's called ectopic pregnancy. And uh, that's a difficult one. Because what you have here is a life, and when is it right to take the life 
of the baby when you hold the position that all life is of God and should be maintained and sustained. An ectopic pregnancy, I believe, falls outside of the arena of abortion when you have done everything possible to sustain the life of that baby, but now you are in a question of moral ethic. What do I do? Do I allow the baby to survive, or do I put my wife at risk and maybe she doesn't survive? That's a very difficult ethical question, and what I've learned in my own walk with the Lord is if I have to make a decision between two at the place of one losing their life, I'm under obligation by the Word of God to save my wife's life first because Christ died for the church. He gave himself up for it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You have a higher obligation to your wife to love her over anyone else. Now, that happens in .001% of the times, and I would not put it in the level of abortion when you've got your wife at risk and you've got an ectopic pregnancy. I'm just mentioning that because I had to deal with some couples that in their conscience, they wanted it to be clear in terms of their choices. And so I mentioned that from the pulpit, but if you want to talk more about it, we can later. But anyways, on the whole, I would say life begins at conception, okay? Number three, homosexuality is another big cultural issue. Homosexuality, a man with a man in sexual relations. It's a sin. It's a sin. Okay? You have to be very clear about that. Okay? Transgenderism, a man trying to identify as a woman or a woman identifying as a man. It's a sin. It's a sin. I have to be very clear to you about that. Jesus said, I made them male and female. He made you a male to be a male. He made you a female to be a female. And in essence, what the culture is trying to do is redefine identities when in fact there are only two, male and female, and he made you a certain way. And the scriptures are clear on that one as well. And so, if I, I could go on here, but those were kind of the top ones that came to me. These teachings, and what I believe is this, are calling for a higher cost in the culture today. These are the ones. These are the four big ones in my mind that cause the higher cost for us in culture. But the teaching in Scripture is very clear. Now, what we don't need is angry Christians. This is what you've got to fight is this spirit of anger or reactive Christians. You see so much on the media and you just kind of react and get upset about it and you respond in negative ways. I'm suggesting you need a real balance here. Spine without spite. Spine without spite. And I, I, I just think sometimes, I know this happens to me sometimes, I feel triggered when I see something on the media or I see something uh, on the computer about this. But the, the danger is it can be irritating. It can be inflaming inside of our hearts, but we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful how we deal with that because I think there's two polar extremes that Christians typically lean toward, and I'm trying to get you to a balance. There are one Christ, ones who are quiet and lack the spine to speak at all. And then there are ones who don't speak in love, but spite. They just, they just kind of get irritable, and the better word is obnoxious. They're obnoxious with the culture. Don't be obnoxious with the culture. When you become obnoxious with the culture, what you really do is you make the culture tone deaf to you. They're not listening to you. 
And so that's why I say spine without spite, because you have to find this balance as you work with the culture. Jesus responds. He keeps doing what he knows God wants him to do. He's going to speak the truth with a spine without spite. Spine without spite. Okay, number two, love without being likable. Love without being likable. The second reason they interrogate Jesus is because they are gathering ammunition against him to kill him. <laughs> They're hoping when they say, Jesus, where do you get this authority? He says, well, I'm God. Look, heresy, burn him, stone him, let's crucify him. See, they want him to just say, I'm God. And he's so elusive. He's so elusive about this. Because in just about three chapters from here in Mark 14, he's going to come right out and say it. The chief priest is so fed up with him, and he says, just tell me, who are you? I am that I am. I'm God. Chief priest says, that's it, crucify him. See, that's, he's waited until that time where he needs to be beaten, and that's when he's going to come out and say, I am that I am. But until then, he's very elusive about who he is in the book of Mark. As a matter of fact, in this particular case, he is so elusive, he answers a question with a question. Now, the common way to enter debate in the Jewish culture, which I'm not good at, I'm not as clever, Jesus is very uh, wise here, but he answers a question, wish a question, because that's how they did it then. They would answer a question with a question, and in the question would be the answer. Now, I can never answer people like that, but in the question will be the answer. Okay? Now, this may be taking you a little deeper than you really wanted to go, but I really want you to understand the wisdom here so basically, he says, was John's authority from God or man? Was John's authority from God or man? If John's authority is from heaven, it means that John was rightly telling people who Jesus is, and he's God. Well, they don't want to answer that because they're thinking, then I've got to admit that John's from God and Jesus is from God because ultimately Jesus was saying this in his answer. This is where he rightly gives the answer in the question. My authority is linked to the ultimate source of the authority of John's baptism. That's what he's really saying. He's saying my authority is so linked to John, whatever you say about John is true of me. And if you say John's from God, then I'm of God, I am God. And that's why they know they can't say that. That's how... Uh, tough this is for them. Second of all, if they were to admit that and say, yeah, John was from God, then the problem is it means that the Sanhedrin's role of power and authority that they claim isn't true. In other words, they don't have the power that they should have as being in Moses' seat. And so it's an interesting thing. Their claim to authority isn't necessary if John the Baptist and Jesus don't go to them for authorization. If they don't go to the Sanhedrin to get a license to preach, or they don't go to get a license to be a rabbi, then if they say he's from God, then they don't need the Sanhedrin. And this is what the Sanhedrin hate. They hate losing the authority over people, not just the responsibility to them, but to control them and to enforce it. This is what organizations do to people. They, Jesus is saying to them, you've got a responsibility sitting in Moses' seat, but you don't have the power to enforce it and force people to do what you want them to do. 
And Jesus says, I'm not going to submit to that. Neither is John the Baptist. This is really important to kind of understand that the Sanhedrin were overestimating their God-given role. God is saying, Jesus is saying to them, you've got a responsibility. You're in Moses' seat, but you don't have the power to enforce it and rule it over people and control them. I really believe this about this passage. Jesus is setting an example of how we are to react to leaders and people and culture who say they are the authority. Now listen to me carefully, okay, because I'm not out to really upset everybody about this, but I do want you at some level to understand that. Jesus didn't care if they sat in the seat of Moses. He didn't care if they sat in the seat of Peter. He didn't care if they sat in the seat of Paul. Because ultimately, he is saying that he was not going to bend to culture, he was not going to bend to ruling governments, and he was not going to bend to religi established religious authority. That is so important for you to understand. I know you may have missed what I was really saying there, but he is not going to bend to the religious established authority. Why is this so important? Let me just apply it to my life, okay? Leaders tend to bend today. They are sometimes afraid of their community and they're afraid of their congregation and religious rulers on that token because they want to be likable. I just want to say to you, I get that as a pastor. I want to be likable, but I don't want to be likable in the way that I have to compromise who I am or the Word of God. And it's very important for you to understand that. I get it because sometimes you'll you'll want to bring a visitor to church and you, you hope that I don't say anything to embarrass them and make them feel terrible about coming to our service. I get that. But ultimately, I know I can't be likable at the expense of violating at any level the Word of God. And so that's always a balance at one level. I can't be a people pleaser. Do I want to be likable? Yeah, there's a part of me that wants to be likable, but I ultimately know I don't want to be likable to the point that I compromise anything in the Word of God. And that is always something I'm sensitive to as a pastor. So many pastors today are afraid to do that. And they just kind of sidestep around the issues uh, because, well, people will get upset. People don't agree. People say you're fighting the culture. And so they'll please their community or they'll please, please their, their congregation. Proverbs says, pleasing man is a vice. I can't do it. I, ha I cannot water down the word and be responsible to Jesus Christ. Now, the irony here in the text is that they go to Jesus after they figure this out. We can't say he's from God because then we don't have the authority over him. And we can't say he's from man because all the people love John the Baptist and think he's a hero and he died a martyr. So we're really in a tough situation. So they look at Jesus and they say, we don't know. Well, Jesus says, well, then I won't tell you. I won't tell you. They are afraid of the crowd because they won't answer the question and they don't want to lose face. 
This is what happens to preachers. This may happen to you, that they're afraid of the crowd sometimes, and they lose face. And so all along they're asking Jesus a question to get him in trouble, and they come and say, when they're asked a question, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. That phrase, we don't know, that bugs me. Because that's the kind of phrases preachers say today sometimes. We just don't know. We don't know. But they did know. They did know what they really believed, but they wouldn't say what they really believed. Listen to me, that's what I'm saying to you. They did know. They believed 100%, the Sanhedrin believed 100% that John the Baptist was illegitimate. And they believed Jesus was illegitimate. He didn't get a license from us. He didn't go by our rules. But what they did is, we'll pretend we don't know. We'll pretend we don't know because it's convenient in our particular circumstances. I said to a preacher acquaintance one time, I just laid it out. I said, let's, let's just shoot it straight here. We were at a particular function together as several of us. Is homosexuality right or wrong? Is it right or wrong? It's muddy waters. That's what he said. It's muddy water. It's muddy waters? Yeah, it's muddy waters. So I felt myself getting a little spine with spite in me, and I went a little further than that, and I said, I said this to him, does God call men to lead the church and lead the home? Not always. I said, not always. I see no evidence in the New Testament anywhere that, that men, are not, or men are called to lead the church and lead the home. Not always. How about Barak? Deborah led Barak into battle. That's because Barak was a wimp. And not only was he a wimp, but everybody in the book of Judges were wimps. And God said, if you're going to be a bunch of wimps, men, I'm going to get the women to lead. And so because every man did what was right in his own eyes, the whole book of Judges is reversed and flipped around with lousy leaders. But yet they want to use that to justify what the Scriptures are not even teaching. We don't know, said the Sanhedrin. We don't know. But they did know. John Stott calls them pretending agnostics. That's what we got today. We got people that are pretending agnostics. I don't really know. But you do know. They don't want to be honest because the evidence is undeniable and they don't know how to deny it, so their stubborn will dictates what they believed more than the evidence. It's ironic to me. They wanted an honest answer from Jesus, but they won't give him an honest answer. Isn't that amazing? All right, let me, let me kind of round this off. Number three, cleverness without compromise. That's the third thing in your behavior you need. You need cleverness without compromise. Now, I'm not going to illustrate this from my life. I, there's one guy I like that I like the way he's an apologist. His name is Alex McFarland. He lives over in Greensboro, and he travels a lot and does a, a lot of apologetics. One time he told this story about, I don't know if you know him or not, but he told this story going into a Christian school, and he decided not to preach. And he said, listen, just ask me any question you want. And anybody who comes up with the best question will get 10 bucks. So an eighth grade girl 
raises her hand and she says this, why does Jesus hate gay people? Christian school. Why does Jesus hate gay people? He's thinking to himself, I think that girl's going to get the 10 bucks. That's what he was thinking there at the time. He said, so why do people, why does Jesus hate gay people? The simple answer, which I would have been thinking is, he doesn't. He doesn't hate gay people. But what Alex McFarland tried to get us to think is deeper about the fact of how people in the Christian culture and the culture are being trapped with these kind of questions. The key word there was, why does Jesus hate gay people? It's a setup. It's a trap. And so here's what he said. He said, can I help you think through this? Eighth grade girl. He said, would you ever die for someone you hated? She said, no way, never. He said, did Jesus die for gay people? She said, well, yeah. He said, well, maybe you're misunderstanding the issues. Maybe the issue is about love, God's love, both in dying for them and telling them they are on the wrong path in life. That was beautiful. I could, I could have never even thought like that. That he could love them both in dying for them and at the same time telling them they're on the wrong path. It was good. It was good. Here's another question. He said, any other questions? And somebody said this. This is so culturally relevant to me because of the, of the hot button words. Why would you say a good Muslim can't go to heaven? Why would you say a good Muslim can't go to heaven? That's a hot, the hot button word in the last one was gay. The hot button word in this one is Muslim. So the simple answer would be, well, because he's not saved. But that does not provoke thought in the people that are being trapped by the people who are trying to trap them. Because they're hearing these questions from culture, and so they're just repeating themselves. This kid was a 10th grader, and so he says, why would you say a good Muslim can't go to heaven? So what Alex said is, what do you mean by good? He's provoking thought to get them to see how they're being trapped by their questions. That's what I'm trying to do with you right now, is to get you to provoke thought in your life. He shifted off the trap of Muslim to focus on how all people at some level think they're good. All people at some level think they're good, but that doesn't change their condition before God. That doesn't change their condition before God. Uh, well, I loved, I loved the, uh, the lecture that he gave on that particular day, and I got to thinking about it in here, and... Uh, I want to just now kind of get you to think in a practical way before you leave here this morning. How do I get spiritual authority? I gave you the illustration of Son. I gave you some thoughts to provoke your thought and how you deal with the culture. A lot of times what we say, and I think I've used this word a lot, so I, I want to just say it right now. We call on people to make a commitment. Commitment's a good word, but the more I think about it, it's a problem word. The problem with it, when you say, I'm going to commit to something, the problem with it is you are still in control. 
you are still in control. Like, we committed to lose weight here at the end of the summer because we gained too much weight. We've committed to do that. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to commit to go on a diet and lose weight. I'm going to start working out. I commit to do that. We commit to read our Bible every day or we commit to pray every day. We're very sincere about that, but then what happens? Life happens. And when life happens, distractions come and the commitment begins to wane. Not because we weren't sincere, but because we were in control. We're the one who made the commitment. And when the control got weak, the commitment got weak. When the control got weak, the commitment got weak. So what I want to do is I don't want to challenge you with the word commitment. I want to switch the word out. And here's the word I want you to think about today as you go. This is spiritual authority. And the word I want you to walk away with is surrender. Surrender. If a man comes to you and he pulls out a gun and he holds up a gun to you and says, stick your hands up, right then, that trumps commitment. You're not sitting there saying, I'm going to commit to hold my hands up. Should I commit? Should I not? No. You surrender. You throw your hands up because you're surrendered now and you're saying, I'm not committed anymore. I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered. You're not thinking about it. Do I really want to do this? Do I not really want to do it? What if things get tough in life? What if this happens to me? You know why? Because someone else is in control now. Commitment is all about you and you being in control. Surrender is about someone else being in control of your life. And so, if they say to you, sit down, you sit down. You don't have to think about it twice. Why? Because you're not in control. You're surrendered to them at that point. You know what you do when you surrender? You do what you're told. You do what you're told. There's no discussion within yourself about it. You just do it. When you surrender, somebody else is in control calling the shots. That's what I'm trying to say to you today. Surrender says it's not up to us. It's whatever you say, boss. You're the boss. Somebody else is asking me to surrender. That's the word he's after in your life. And when you surrender to him, his authority becomes your authority. It doesn't depend on your commitment. But obedience to authority about who tells me what to do. And once you surrender, I believe this with all my heart, heaven wakes up and says, we got one. We got one. They're going to see my power. That's what I think Joseph Son found. He said, I was in control through the spirit of submission. That just stuck with me when I read his story. And I want to stick with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time now, and I thank you for each one that listened under the sound of my voice. I know my calling. I know the things that I wrestle with. It's so much easier to be committed to you than it is to surrender to you. But though there may be some folks here right now that need to come under your total control by surrender, which trumps their commitment. 
And Lord, I pray you'll do a work in them. Some are afraid to speak up. They're scared. But they want to represent you. I pray your spiritual authority over them. Some go too far. They get irritable. And they just do it with spite. Lord, I just want to pray there'd be a spirit over us that has a real balance between those two things. Because we got a culture knocking at us every day. Just triggering us. Just waiting to be triggered over something. We gotta fight that. We gotta fight that. So put your hand over this congregation, Lord, for your blessing, for your power, your spiritual authority to move into their lives. May they give it over to a person their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you release spiritual authority into their lives. Lord, give us the wisdom to do that. In this day and age, we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to come and sing now at this time. And There's something in your life that you need to bring to the altar today, something that God's been dealing with you as you've heard the sound of God's word. It's a powerful moment to just think through spiritual authority over you. I pray God would speak to you at this moment in time. Let's sing.